Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. What does it take to rebuild America? That's sort of the question at the heart of the book today. It's titled The Great Escape, A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America by labor organizer Saket Soni. And it's about the hundreds of Indian men who were sold a false promise after Hurricane Katrina. A company came up to them and said, hey, give us $20,000, come to America, help us rebuild some oil rigs, and we'll give you a new green card. Of course, that green card never came, and they were forced to work under squalid conditions. The book is one of NPR's books we love this year because of how it highlights not just the exploitation going on, but the humanity of these men. Socket Sony talked to here and now's Deepa Fernandez about how the thing that actually helped organize these men to fight for their rights was food. That's after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. In 2006, Sarkat Sonny was a labor organizer working in New Orleans when he received a phone call from a stranger in Mississippi desperate for help. The caller was an Indian migrant worker who had been lured to the U.S. by a company called Signal International to repair oil rigs damaged by Hurricane Katrina. In a meeting at a local church and in gatherings afterwards, Sarkat learned that there were hundreds of men living in what Signal called man camps under appalling conditions. They believed they were working towards green cards, but in reality, the men were temporary workers who Signal could send home at any time. Eventually, Sarkat helped the men escape and led them on a march to Washington, D.C. to publicize their plight and help them stay in the U.S. But all along the way, they were shadowed by agents of ICE and continually being discredited by Signal. Sarkat Sonny writes about their journey in his new book, The Great Escape, and he joins us now. Welcome, Sarkat. Great to be here. So, Sarkat, I met you in the years after Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana, where you were organizing and I was reporting. You introduced me to Peruvian migrant workers brought in to do the rebuilding and to African-Americans displaced by the storm. And I distinctly remember you telling me your suspicions about Indian workers who were stuck in these indentured type camps. And I remember thinking this couldn't possibly be true. Yes, well, I remember that. And um, I think we met in New Orleans right around the time that I started getting these mysterious midnight phone calls from men who insisted on remaining anonymous, but told me that they had been brought from India to rebuild somewhere in Mississippi. I went on a hunt for them and found them. It turned out that my mysterious callers were just a few among 500 men. And they were basically locked into these camps and only allowed out on the company bus. Describe the conditions they lived in. They were working round-the-clock shifts behind barbed wire fences, living 24 to a trailer and eating nothing more than frozen rice. Recruiters charged them $20,000 apiece, for green cards, but there were never any green cards. 
the small narrow window of freedom they were given was on Sundays they were allowed to go to church. Now, there were Hindus and Muslims among the workers, um, and even they would go to church just to enjoy a small measure of freedom. When I got to that church for a clandestine meeting with three men, I was reaching for the doorknob, rehearsing my speech, opened the door, got ready to give the speech, and there were a hundred men and hundreds more where they came from. You know, some people might wonder, like, $20,000 for a green card. You know, these workers came from very humble families of, of little wealth. How were they able to get such a sum of money? You're absolutely right. $20,000 represents generations of savings. These were people who sometimes earned a dollar a day, sometimes $5 a day. But the way they were able to afford it was... They sold ancestral land. They put their homes on hock. They sold jewelry and all of their assets. And then on top of that, took high interest loans, 17 to 20% interest loans, often from violent moneylenders who started circling their families once mm. the men left to the United States. You came to believe pretty early on that th these men were victims of trafficking, and that ends up winding its way through the book because that's how they might get to stay in the United States, not the that's green right. cards they were promised. How do you make the case that they were victims of trafficking and not simply kind of defrauded, like scammed out of $20,000? Yeah, you know, we made the case that this was not just garden variety labor abuse or even awful conditions. This was actually forced labor and human trafficking. But it wasn't the kind of trafficking that U.S. officials and adjudicators are used to. These were skilled workers, all men, and they weren't confined in the basement of a restaurant the way many trafficked workers are. These were men who fell captive principally because of the loans they took and the incredible debt they undertook to pay the recruiters $20,000. Mm. They now were in a a relationship of servitude with Signal International, with this company. Mm. They were not free to leave, not because they were trapped by a lock and key, but because their debts kept them, even past the point that their visas expired, even when they were undocumented, kept them at work and inside Signal's labor camps. You know, to get to the point where you could prove this, you had to convince workers that they had to take direct action. And, and I think for me, what I read in this story is not just the power of community organizing, but how challenging it is. Talk to me about not just trying to win relief for one man or two men, but using them as a group. Yeah, at the heart of the book and at the heart of the campaign to free these men was a deep and very unlikely friendship I forged with one of these workers. This was Rajan, who was deep in that crowd of 100 people. He reached out to me secretly afterwards, and we partnered to bring the men out of the labor camp and put them on a freedom march. And it started in the unlikeliest way. It started with Indian spices. Um, what Rajan <laughs> knew was that the way these men had been made to feel so deeply less than human was that the company denied them food. They were eating this frozen rice. That's all they ever ate. 
and Rajan had me smuggle in Indian spices. And he commandeered the cafeteria in the labor camp, and he cooked these men an Indian meal to revive them and produce some hope. And then we hatched a plot that's out of a heist movie for the escape. Without giving too much away, it involved bribing the security guards. And we concocted a fictitious Indian wedding as a pretext to ferry these men out to New Orleans and onto the road to Washington. So, Sarkat, you were up against a powerful company, Signal International, and you ended up learning that Signal used all its political influence to try and have the workers deported, discredited... What did you learn in the process of this campaign about who the immigration system is set up to favour? Deep inside the federal government, there were corrupt agents who had helped Signal International carry out the trafficking scheme. These very same immigration agents then fought to appoint themselves as the investigators of the human trafficking once we filed our Department of Justice complaint. When this revelation came to light, it's ultimately what forced lawmakers in Washington to push the Justice Department to move forward with their investigation and give protections Mm. to the workers. I want to jump to what was my favorite part of the book, and it really ties to what you were just saying about the Indian spices. It was towards the end where you are finally able to eat this incredible Carolyn fish curry that one of the workers' wives has made and he's told you about for years. This is really a personal story. I wonder, do you still stay in touch with the workers? Oh, yes. The protagonists of the book have all become close friends. I traveled India with one of the workers in the book late last year. Another worker called me just last week and told me, Saketji, which is how the workers refer to me, our struggle is over. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we finally won our campaign. And I said, well, I I thought we won that back, you know, in 2010. He said, no, no, I just won my personal campaign just last week because my daughter just got into five medical schools. And so I'm, I'm still part of the men's lives. They're still deeply part of mine. And, you know, all of their dreams are coming true for their children, which is why they did what they did. You know, I went to your book reading, Sarkat, and there was a really interesting part where you talked about, you know, now as as the founder and director of an organization called Resilience Force, which advocates for the workforce that rebuilds after climate disasters, you talked about how the very workers who are coming in as the United States experiences more and more frequent climate disasters where floods or fires and people's homes need to be rebuilt. In some cases, the houses that they're rebuilding, those owners, are the very people who may be anti-immigrant, who may be the ones wanting to stop immigrants from coming. And you told a powerful story about one family in Ron DeSantis's Florida. I wonder if you can end by telling us that story. Yeah, you know, there's one family in Florida who had put up a sign on their door after a hurricane blew off its roof. The sign said, strangers will be shot. Well, I showed up to their doorstep with a set of strangers, immigrant strangers, workers with hammers and nails, and we rebuilt that roof. And afterwards... 
We had dinner with the family, Honduran immigrants, Guatemalan immigrants. We supplied interpreters. We exchanged stories. And at the end of the night, that family took that sign down. And I think they're grateful for the strangers who came and helped. I think that gratitude and the friendships that form are the basis for building a really new social cohesion in America. Sakat Sani's book is The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. Sakat, thank you so much. Thank you. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com.